Today is Wednesday, December the 21st, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Apple working to allow European Union third-party app stores on iPhones in 2023. Apple is planning to allow third-party app stores on the iPhone and iPad in Europe. The move comes after legislation passed that will ultimately require the Cupertino-based tech giant to support side-loading. In Europe, iOS 17 in 2023 could support third-party app stores. Anonymous people familiar with the plans recently said customers will soon be able to download apps without needing to use Apple's App Store. Furthermore, developers will not need to pay Apple's 15-30% to fees. When that happens, it'll probably come to the United States. According to these sources, the allowance is only planned for implementation in Europe. If other countries introduce similar legislation to the EU Digital Markets Act, that could change. In such a case, alternate app stores could expand beyond the European Union. The United States, too, is reportedly considering legislation that would require Apple to allow side-loading. European Union's Digital Markets Act threatens heavy penalties for non-compliance. The change is in response to the European Union's Digital Marketing Act, which went into effect on November the 1st. This set of regulations requires gatekeeper companies like Apple to open up their services and platforms to other companies and developers. Apple must comply with the Digital Markets Act, as where the European Union can fine a company as much as 20% of its global revenue for violations of the laws. If Apple does not implement the necessary changes, it could face fines as high as $80 billion. The DMA will have a significant impact on Apple's platforms and could result in major changes to the App Store. Messages, FaceTime, Siri, and more. Apple has until March the 6th of 2024 to comply with the European Union rules. According to Bloomberg News, Apple's software engineering and services employees are working to open up key elements of Apple's platforms, using a significant amount of resources for the change. The functionality is expected to be ready for iOS 17 in 2023, That would put Apple ahead of the 2024 deadline. However, some employees have raised concerns that these updates could impact work on new features slated for iOS 17. At the same time, Apple is considering opening some of its private app frameworks and APIs to third-party developers. If Cupertino moves forward with those steps too, it could provide deeper access to core system functions and hardware. This could allow for third-party apps to gain access to camera technologies not currently available, and Apple is working to open up NFC in a limited way 
that could enable Apple Pay alternatives. Apple has to, however, deal with security considerations. Apple has often cited privacy and security concerns required in opening up its so-called walled garden. To that end, Cupertino is considering implementing security requirements such as verification to protect users from the risk of side-loading. Apple could charge for such a process. In lieu of collecting money from app sales, Apple currently has a verification system on Mac that allows users to be safe while giving them access to apps outside of the Mac App Store. The iPhone maker is also considering further opening up its Find My Network to accessory makers like Tile, and as such stands now, Apple allows third-party device makers to create Find My accessories. These accessories, however, are prohibited from working with non-Find My apps and services. In addition to requiring major changes to the App Store and other Apple services, European legislation is also pushing the company to adopt USB-C across all of its devices, a requirement that goes into effect by the end of 2024. Big tech companies join Linux in effort to kill Google Maps. The companies include Meta, Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, and TomTom, which together could facilitate a new wave of geolocation apps. Companies like TomTom have struggled for years to beat Google Maps in the world of navigation and geolocation, but a partnership facilitated by the Linux Foundation might offer them the likes of Meta and Microsoft a new means of one-upping the current king. Some of the Google's biggest rivals are coming together in a kind of a rose gallery with the hopes of creating new open-source services to knock Google Maps from its mapping throne. Last week, the nonprofit Linux Foundation announced its own open project that's meant to collate new map projects through available datasets, and several other major companies have come out of the woodwork to support it in what seems like a bid to finally end Google's domineering geolocation reign. Those companies include Meta, Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, and none other than the Dutch geolocation company, TomTom. This Overture Maps Foundation is essentially an open-source program for curating and collecting map data across the globe from different multiple data sources. So in essence, the project promises it will use the massive amount of global data housed by these various companies and from outside to build up-to-date maps that developers can then use. Linux also promised this new project will essentially level the playing field for anybody looking to develop up-to-date geolocation services or maps without breaking the bank on expensive commercial data that may not even be accurate. In the release, Linux Foundation's executive director, Jim Zemlin, said mapping the physical environment and every community in the world, even as they grow and change, is a massively complex challenge that no one organization can manage. Of course, all the companies involved could have a major stake in such an open service. Amazon Web Services General Manager Michael Kopenik said in a release that map data is cost prohibitive and complex, though it's unclear if Amazon wants to break into the world of geolocation as well. Overture could also be a boon to its flagging metaverse ambitions, 
with applications in both VR and AR. The company has its own street view company called Mapillary, and it's already worked alongside with Microsoft on street mapping data. While Google and its parent company Alphabet were combining its Maps and Ways teams, its street view and AR capabilities kept getting more sophisticated, leaving its potential competitors in the dust even after it was cited for selling users' location data. That domination is so great that Google Maps has mapped more than 220 countries and territories, according to the company. Map is the most downloaded GPS app by far, and it's not even close. Though TomTom's market share has seriously depleted since highs in 2008, the company has survived against Google Maps with deals in countries where the top-performing app wasn't available. Last month, the company announced a new Maps platform. TomTom's chief technology officer, Eric Bowman, said in an internal Q&A, whether they would admit it or not, is starting to see that there are limits to what any one company can do, no matter how big or powerful or well-funded they are. TomTom's CEO, Harold Kodigen, said in a release, Overture standardization and interoperable base map is fundamental to bringing geospatial information from the world together. Kodak comeback, taking top spot in compact camera sales. Kodak has come back from obscurity to steal the mantle as the best-selling compact camera brand in Japan. Kodak is one of the last manufacturers pushing compact cameras. Kodak has seemingly done the unthinkable, coming back from the wilderness to take the biggest slice of the compact camera pie in Japan. According to BCN Retail, Kodak's market share around 5% in 2010 had gradually increased to 9.7% by March of 2021. However, in November of this year, it recorded a record high share of 24.7% taking the pole position. The main reason for Kodak's remarkable rise is that it undercuts the competition by quite some margin. The average compact camera from Sony or Canon costs around $300, while the average cost of Kodak's camera is between $75 to $110. Of course, all this needs to be taken with a grain of salt, as the compact market is currently imploding, unable to compete with the rise of smartphones. Many of the big players in the industry like Nikon have already pulled out of the compact market, with companies like Panasonic allegedly following soon. Camera companies are refocusing all their efforts on high-end enthusiasts and professional cameras as an area where there is still money to be made and market share to be won. It might be a case of Kodak being the last man standing in the compact field. Kodak's comeback, though, is particularly remarkable as it has gone from a brand that led the entire photography movement to only 10 years ago, the company was entering bankruptcy proceedings. Kodak invented the first digital camera in 1975, but then shelved the whole project as they feared it would hurt their their photographic film business. Keen to protect its film business, it was then slow to innovate in digital and was rapidly overtaken by Asian rivals. This makes it additionally interesting now that it is making inroads in Asia at the expense of Japanese companies, Canon and Sony. Although this is, of course, just a compact market, Japanese companies still reign supreme 
and Sony, Canon, Fujifilm, Nikon, and Panasonic dominate all other areas of photography and video worldwide. Since its bankruptcy, Kodak has undergone huge rounds of layoffs and complete restructuring, with a much more diverse business portfolio with a refocus on printing. It also licensed its name and photographic patents out to the companies. It has also been buoyed by the revival of 35mm and medium format film, even hiring more than 250 staff people to deal with the demand. Kodak has an incredible lineup of film, with Kodak Porta being the most popular film available today. Pioneering methane fuel rocket fails to reach orbit after the launch from China. Had the private launch been successful, it would have been the first time a methane fuel rocket flew to Earth orbit, a goal that SpaceX is also pursuing. The Azuk-2 rocket lifted off from Zhengzhuan Satellite Launch Center in the Gobi Desert, leaving behind an unusual purplish trail, a product of its unique methane fuel. The rocket managed to take flight, but it failed to reach orbit and deliver the 14 satellites that were on board. China's private aerospace company, Landspace, was hoping to lead the way in utilizing methane, the next-generation rocket fuel, which is considered to be cleaner and safer than liquid hydrogen, kerosene, and other propellants currently in use. Liquid methane is also a good choice in terms of rocket reusability, a coveted capability for space companies. The Beijing-based land space launched the doomed Azuk-2 at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time on December the 14th in what was supposed to be the rocket's first orbital mission. Following liftoff, the rocket's second stage suffered an engine malfunction, resulting in mission failure. Outside observers had already speculated that the mission was a failure before the company announced it. Telemetry data suggests the rocket reached a speed of 11,000 miles per hour when it needed to reach around 17,500 miles per hour to maintain a stable orbit. According to Everyday Astronaut, the rocket was carrying a commercial payload of 14 satellites, all of them lost. Not sure why the company thought it was a good idea to launch so many satellites on an unproven rocket, but they did it. Despite its failure, the orbital test flight was still lauded as a major milestone for China and its private space industry as a whole. The Chinese startup had attempted to launch a three-stage Azuk-1 rocket which used solid propellant. Back in 2018, Azuk-1 also failed to reach orbit, but the company is now set on switching to liquid methane as propellant instead. Had land space been successful in launching the rocket to orbit, the company would have beaten Elon Musk's SpaceX in achieving this vaulted goal. SpaceX is also hoping to use liquid methane fuel to power its next-generation Starship rockets, which are yet to fly. The company's Falcon 9 and Super Heavy rockets use kerosene for fuel. Even before its first orbital test flight, Landspace was already preparing for the second attempted launch of Azuk-2, as Space News reported. The rocket's second and third models are already in development, but Landspace is aiming to eventually make the rocket reusable, according to Space News. China is making significant headway with its spaceflight industry, 
both on the private and public front. In October, China launched the final module for its own space station in low Earth orbit, completing the ambitious project to rival the International Space Station. China also had some big plans for the moon, setting up future launches that could compete with NASA's Artemis program. Launching the first ever methane fuel rocket to Earth orbit would certainly give China a major advantage over other space programs. Of course, that all depends on how well the second launch attempt goes. Google has issued an alert to watch out for these five email scams. Google issued alerts on email scams this season as scammers ramp up their attacks. Google's blocking billions of unwanted emails every day, including spam, phishing, and malware emails, and has warned scammers will be getting more extreme as Christmas approaches. Malicious actors don't slow down during the holiday season. They accelerate. Google Cloud said in the past two weeks alone, they've blocked over 231 billion spam and phishing messages, 10% higher than the average volume. And here are the top five scams to watch out for this Christmas. Fake gift cards and giveaways. Scammers may attempt to trick people into purchasing a gift card for them, sometimes using the guise of a known contact or dangle a free prize in exchange for sharing their credit card information. If you receive an email from a friend, send them a quick message to make sure it is genuine. And if a giveaway seems too good to be true, you bet it could be a scam. Then there's fake donations. Christmas is a time of giving, and unfortunately, scammers can take advantage of this. According to Google Cloud, charity-related scams and phishing attempts often get worse at this time of year. Whether it's a supposed charity tied to a subject in the news or an organization with a familiar name. Be on the lookout for anyone asking you to contact them on their personal email or send money to them directly. Then there's subscription renewal scams. Subscription renewal scams can spike as they reach the end of the year and scammers may pose as legitimate company. A particularly unwelcome version of these emails is spoof antivirus services, which lure victims with a promise of improved security. While some scammers can make their message look very convincing, always be sure to check the sender's email. If it looks off, it may be fraudulent. Then there's crypto scams. Crypto scams can also run rampant around this time of the year. Common types of crypto scams include investing in a fake crypto exchange website or app. Fake red flags include typos, email messages that seem off, or demand for crypto tokens and using crypto to pay scammers. And then there's personal tax. Scammers may also use demographic data such as your age and where you live when designing their tax. These scams might seem more personal because they include some specific element of your life or identity. Google has advised users to slow down and check if the email makes sense. Legitimate companies won't demand you to make a payment or provide your personal information on the spot. Another major tech company laying off over 4,000 employees. The tech industry is going through a tough time right now. Big tech companies, including Meta, Amazon, and Twitter, have laid off hundreds and thousands of employees in the last couple of months. 
Joining the list of tech companies is the networking Cisco. According to the latest reports, the company has started laying off 5% of its workforce. Reports of Cisco considering firing employees surfaced last month. The networking company is said to have laid off around 5% of the workforce, which is over 4,000 employees. It is said that the layoffs are part of a rebalancing act while right-sizing certain businesses. As quoted by the report, Cisco hasn't directly commented on the layoffs, but said in an official statement that it did not take this decision lightly and will offer those impacted extensive support, including generous severance packages. The report quoted chairman and CEO of Cisco, who did not divulge into giving direct details related to layoffs, but said he would be reluctant to go into a lot of details here until we're able to talk to them. I would say that what we're doing is right-sizing certain businesses. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a little bit of time talking about, yes, Computers, the workplace, IT professionals, all kinds of different things in the business world. This week, I wanted to talk about something that people don't really think about when they go into IT. A friend of mine at work, co-worker, he mentioned the idea that there are times when we just have to admit that we're going to be spending the next 12 hours at work at the end of the day, or even further, the idea of the IT professional just coming in and working an eight-hour day is rather rare. Even when things are going right, everything's going beautifully. Sometimes we just have to do things after hours. Sometimes we have to take the servers down. We have to go through and do whatever work it is in the middle of the night. And when I say the middle of the night, we're talking sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning. There was one day where I had to go into the office, and I had to work all day. I then went out for dinner. I caught a little bit of a nap in my car, and I got up and did the work at, it was actually more like 1 o'clock in the morning. I had to, and then I had to be available first thing in the morning, yes, at 6 o'clock in the morning, to be there to check to make sure everything was working properly, that all of the users throughout the company were able to access their technology. This has given rise to a lot of the idea that IT workers thrive on things like Jolt Cola, which is no longer available, or Red Bull, which most definitely is available. And uh, I have a Red Bull sitting right in front of me at the moment. So there's all of it. I mean, the stereotype is there. And yes, there are times when IT people eat junk food. It's one of the few things that you can get delivered. Yes, pizza, you know, Chinese food to some extent at very early hours of the morning. 
We have to do that. We have to be able to to survive on whatever we can muster up because there are times when we go into the office. This is a, this is a story I've told on a number of occasions where I will have where I, I went into the office one day. I got up at 530 in the morning and I drove into the office, got there at seven o'clock in the morning and then I worked my full shift. At that point, at that particular company, generally we broke at 3.30. That was, you know, 7 to 3.30, half an hour lunch. So it was pretty much pack everything into the day and just get it done. And then you hop on the road and you go home. So that particular day, I got to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and two different people within about 15 minutes of each other noted that they were having computer problems. One of them couldn't explain anything of what was going on. Oh, it's just not working properly and you need to fix it right away. Okay. And that's fine. The other one, well, he reached out to me and he said, you know, Benjamin, I did something wrong. Huh? Yeah, I knew in advance it was not the right thing to do. I knew, but I still did it anyway. (laughs) Well, thank you. You knew in advance, but you just decided to barrel through and click a link to a particular website which installed malware on your computer. He and I both, he and I got along really well, and he joked about it on a regular basis. And, you know, that's fine. But that led to my finding out that yes he clicked on it but someone that other person also clicked on that same link just happened to click on it earlier than he did so we had two different well it was the same malware package two different computers pushing this malware package throughout our entire network which resulted in the encryption of files it was a ransomware package so i had to go ahead and continue working. Now you think, okay, you know, this now that you know that it's it's ransomware, it'll take you a couple of hours to fix. No, it had spread through our network. It had started encrypting a lot of things on our network. So I had to go through I had to identify the things that were encrypted. I had to identify the different problems that were occurring on the network. I had to kick everybody off the network that was on the network, which wasn't a whole lot because we were starting to work into after hours. And the few people that were left were the night shift, which didn't work on the computers. Needless to say, I continued working through the night, continued doing restores, Continued all the way through until the next morning and through the day and through to the end of the day. Yes, completely awake, completely thriving on caffeine and whatever food I could muster up. And then I left the following evening at 7 p.m. Now, mind you, I didn't come in for a day or so, but, you know, this is something that you have to be prepared for. As an IT professional, you have to know that sometimes everything is going to fall apart. Everything is going to require every hand on deck, all the boots on the ground, everything, just to solve the problem, just to move forward. It's not a pretty thing. My coworker, he didn't have quite as dire of a story, but it was it was close enough. It was a similar type of arrangement. That 
is what all IT professionals have to look forward to. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Presenting Rebecca Mercury with her segment on Women in STEM. Now, you've been very active in the STEM field. How has it changed at all in the last 10, 20, 30 years? Very interesting question, and it's a very important question nowadays. I just happened to be watching on, I think, the History Channel or one of those channels. Um, They were showing these videos about toys that changed the world, and that included things like Legos and Sock'em, rock'em robots and stuff like that. If you can see this set of videos, it's absolutely fascinating because they really get into the copyrights and the patents and how, you know, all these toys were created and the vent, you know, the people were selling them ripped off the inventors and stuff like that. So it's very fascinating. But one of the ones that they featured um, was the erector set. And the erector set um, was intended for boys. And many things were intended for boys that were scientific toys. In fact, I grew up with my brother, who was also a boy, and, and dad would buy him many of those toys. Of course, I was interested in being his older sister. You know, we would work on them together. Um, and who cared that the chemistry set only had boys on it, you know, I was really interested in chemistry at the time. Our father was a chemistry teacher. So I didn't let that bother me. But you notice even to this day, there's like the purple and pink aisle for the girls' toys and these sort of other colors, you know, more maybe military or whatever for the boys' toys. It's not as obvious. And they do now put people, you know, of varying genders and and also different uh, racial components on these boxes because it's really important that people not be felt like, you know, this track is only intended for girls um, or this track is only intended for boys and stuff like that. So that's where it starts. And, and it still is starting that way, unfortunately. I mean, we need to do much more work at those levels. Um, but then as we get further up, we see that, um, that women, you know, have really uniformly been ignored in the histories of many scientific endeavors, such as the history of computing. Um, we know that there were women who worked on the ENIAC computer at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, um, who were doing the programming. They actually created important statements that for this early computer, like the halt statement, when it gets to zero, stop, don't go into the negative realm, stuff like that. So, so these women um, who were actually originally hired because they were mathematicians, they had degrees, bachelor's, and maybe even master's degrees in mathematics. And then as everybody was getting all the men were getting sent off to um, World War II. Um, there were not enough people to just work on the ENIAC computer and some of these other computing um, endeavors. Um, so, the, again, mostly men were engineers at that time, and the women were mathematicians, so they redeployed them to be the programmers. They were the first programmers. And uh, came Mockley. Uh, well, now her later her name was Mockley, um, but um, she married the Mockley, who was an engineer. So you know, a number of them did you know connect up, and um, 
and generate other engineers <laughs> later in life. But the but the interesting thing is, is that for the most part, like the movie The Hidden Figures, um, the women's contributions to many, many, many of these major endeavors in computing and engineering and science were just it was just ignored. They were, you know, not considered um to be the people who were really doing the driving work or the extremely important work. And they weren't featured in books and articles and magazines and stuff like that um, as the men were. So again, that also became, you know, a serious problem. And, and um, so again, you know, as for myself, when I first entered my first actual engineering slash computer science full-time job, I was working at RCA laboratories in Princeton and this was in the 1980s. And and there, um, it was nearly impossible for a woman um, to to get any sort of advancement. I was there for five years, and I was never promoted. I was never even allowed to get a patent, although I implied for numerous patents. The patent attorneys never filed my patents. Later, they regretted that decision because some of those patents were obtained by other entities, and they came back to me saying, oh, well, look what company now got this patent, and that was your prior artist. And so you're going to file a complaint? Well, no. <laughs> so, so it was virtually impossible. If you didn't get patents, and I couldn't get a patent because I was a woman, it took me a while to figure that out. But um, if you didn't get patents, you didn't get promoted, and you didn't get um, other advancements. So, so this type of um, – and this was true also at Bell Laboratories – Mary Hill, as well as Holmdale. I worked at Holmdale, new people at Mary Hill. Um, many of the, the women who are my peers had this problem that we could not get advancements. And um, so, so that, was, that was basically a situation. So it was a self-perpetuating situation. And then when you look at the universities, again, the people who were getting the full professorships were largely men. It started to change recently. But you still have the demographic where about only about 15% of women are applying for um, to be a student in electrical engineering programs around the entire United States. Now, this is not the case in India. In India, they do have a more balanced demographic, and they have quite a number of, of uh, engineers who are women. People are recognized properly and you know they may have other problems there but um but there are other countries that are doing this correctly but here in the united states there is you know it's first it's a pipeline so we call it the diminishing pipeline so you start out with this many people you know this is a audience thing that's right you're not going to be able to see my hands with me but you start out with a high number of people who are coming out of high school applying to engineering schools and at colleges and things like that. And then that that is diminishing. Then as they go along in the four years, the, no, the ratio of the women to men graduating is diminishing. So if you only start out with 15%, let's say it's, let's say it's 35% women applying for engineering and 15% graduating, although I think it's worse than that. But, but if you only have a small number of people applying, 
and then even smaller number of them are graduating, then that's your people who are going to go to graduate schools and who are also going to go into the workforce. So those numbers are going to continue to be low. And I'm not saying that explicit discrimination is occurring, not that I ever experienced well, I, there were a few instances of explicit <laughs> discrimination, but but mostly it was implicit. It took me a while to figure out, no, you're never going to get promoted if you continue to work here, and you're never going to get a patent, and you're never going to get a scientific award. So, so, so that now a lot more people know about it, and people are on the lookout for it, um, and but the problem is that you still have that diminishing pipeline. So by the time you get to these technical degrees with people with PhDs, again, it is still a much smaller number. So the faces that you're going to see in college are not going to be of your gender. So so it's so that's the situation. And and I think it is a big problem because we're losing out on these extraordinarily talented women. I mean, the women of the ENIAC, you know, were women mathematicians. I mean, I think that's extraordinary that here they all were getting their degrees in those fields. And then they got shifted because that's where the job needs were. And they didn't have anybody to fill them. And um, as Kay Mockley often would say, well, then the war ended and we all went home and started our families. So <laughs> it's very sad. You know, some of them did stay. Some of them did stay in the field. But by and large, like, you know, what we call them the Rosies. The Rosies are the, you know, the women machinists who were working in the factories and stuff. And then they were sort of pushed out when men came back and needed to be involved. Now it's, you know, we're seeing more gender diversity in the military now. So that's actually a very good thing. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we could do to change this. But unfortunately, I think there's still this perception among women that math is hard and mathematics fields are hard. And so we're not even going to try to get into them. Uh, whereas guys just gut it out and they're like, okay, so I got a D in calculus. And so, you know, I'm just going to take the next one because that's enough for me to get in there. And I can tell you that I myself did poorly in math as an undergraduate, but that was because <laughs> I, I think about math in a very different way. And it wasn't until graduate school that I realized the aha moment that, oh, Actually, I am solving these problems correctly. I'm just doing it a different way. So then I wouldn't get partial credit on exam questions, whereas somebody who did it exactly the way the teacher showed it on the board will get the partial credit. So I missed out on points and stuff like that. But I did actually have a uh, guidance counselor when I was an undergraduate who said, oh, Oh, who cares? It's only, I think it was, I don't think it was a D. My father would have probably killed me. I think it was a C. He was like, I was ready to drop out of computer science. I got a C in calculus, in a calculus class. And he's the advisor said, why don't you just take the next one? You could take the next one and just see if you do better. And then you can make that decision. So the next one I got a B and then I was doing much better. But who has that? I was very fortunate to have that my undergraduate degree was at Penn State. Now, I was very fortunate to have excellent professors there who really did not um, care about, 
you know, the stupidity of these demographics and just really wanted to push me on because they saw that I could really do good things. We, we need that. We need more mentors. There are women's programs. And I'll take this opportunity to plug the MORE project. The MORE project is something I came up with during the pandemic and received a sizable grant that was given to the IEEE to uh, train uh, people, specifically youth and specifically non-males, um, in amateur radio to get their amateur radio licenses. And we have funding for this. And you can just you can just look for it online or email me. But um, it's called the Moore Project. And it'll be going on for a number of years further. And the idea is that radios are everywhere. They're in, you know, embeddable uh, medical devices that go into your body. They're, te- you know, radio signals are in pretty much everything. Your watch and, you know, all this stuff is all radio technology. And people who um, get their amateur radio license, especially at a young age, they might be interested in going into those fields and working on radios. And I think it's a great field for women. And um, And I think it would be Really fantastic to have more STEM initiatives at the, you know, at the high school level and to get the, the gals involved in, um, in getting the radio licenses. Again, just because of the way the hobby is, not as many. Um, it's about, again, it's still about because it's sort of engineering. So it's about 15% females. So we really want to get more people involved with amateur radio. So just look up Amateur Radio More Project. You'll probably find our website. And I would really encourage that and starting it at a young age and just really trying to get and more people of all, you know, genders, but, you know, primarily the youth who are not really getting involved in radio as much as they should. I think it's a great way to get into technology. As, as much as you talk about women in STEM, it's the education system that holds them back. They say, and they discourage them. Yes. Yes. It is still going on. It's totally still going on. And again, it may be explicit, which is horrible and there should be lawsuits, but there's, there's a lot of implicit. Thank you, Rebecca, for your insight. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and uh, w- w- two weeks ago we did no, last-minute last Christmas last, ideas. Yeah, yeah last-minute last Christmas minute, ideas. And last week was the last 30 seconds. Right, okay. So let's not burn all our time because this is the last 10 seconds. Last of 10 Christmas seconds, on- okay. <laughs> all right. I'm on the edge of my seat. All right, go all right. on. I want to show you something. You can see an AC plug corded into a device. Everybody watching on their uh, car radios. Uh, that has uh, both USB-C, three of those, and a mm-hmm. USB-A charger. This is from Mophie, which is one of the Zag y- units. Yes, yes. Uh, Love Mophie. Yeah, and it's a GAN charger, which means it's putting out fast charging like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Four ports, uh, plugs in a Walmart uh, outlet, the business side. Uh, has one USB-A port, good for 5 watts or 12 watts, depending on the mode. Mm-hmm. Three USB-C ports supporting the PD power delivery standard. Mm-hmm. One's rated at 20 watts. One's rated at 20 or 45 or 67 or 100 watts. Think okay, so, 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 right? so yeah, 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 definitely. And one for 67 or 100 watts. 
The charger delivers a total of 120 watts, so make choices about what you plug in. But this is one beefy charge delivery choice. Yeah. Mopi Speedport 120. Yeah. Now, I'm loving that. Uh, I got in something, and I'm going to go very fast because we'll hit this next year, is the Tromb air purifier. It's not on the market yet. I was led to believe it was. T-R-O-M-B-E. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Uh, it is uh, panhandling on Indiegogo right now, trying to, <laughs> <laughs> trying to raise money. And uh, uh, unfortunately, LG has a similar device uh, that they've managed to launch without panhandling. Mm -hmm. uh, this is three filters on a fan that runs fairly quiet uh, on something that sits on a countertop. Uh, mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to talk about Look, it's it's about smoke. It's about pollen. Uh, pollen. It's about allergens. It's about dust. Okay. Uh, and and that means three filters. One's washable pre-filter. One is a HEPA filter, and one is a carbon-activated destinkifier filter. Okay. All right. Now, just a word, and this is like a Christmas shopping warning, everybody. If anything has three filters. The minute you turn it on, you start clogging those filters. It starts getting yeah, 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 doing worse. Also, the more you clog the filters, the sooner you need to buy replacement filters. Mm -hmm. There are alternatives out there that don't need filters or that use only washable filters. And caveat emptor. Is this kind of one of those situations that they're they're trying to go after the the razor and the blade concept where they they want to sell you a bunch of these filters? Uh, no, they're charging so much for the basic unit that the blade doesn't matter. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> that and they're is limited not in how good. many they can make, which is a, a, an, another issue. Sure, uh, we we should talk for a minute about. Uh, Batteries and Christmas. Yes, yes. Always a popular topic here. Yeah, go on. Uh, you know this factoid. Why don't you uh, share it with everyone? The number one shopping day for batteries, it's not any time before Christmas. It's not Christmas Eve. It's the day after Christmas. No matter how many batteries you buy before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The one that's in the toy or gizmo gets... Works to death halfway yeah. through Christmas Day. Yeah. And the backup you got for it gets inserted and worked to death before night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Love you know, it, it, it yeah. just stock up on the batteries and it make sure you've got plenty of those on hand. Yeah, that's perfect advice and you never will. So don't worry about it if you fail. But <laughs> it's our job to warn you about that. Uh, I also wanted to talk about uh, power failure very briefly. Sure. Uh, don't be buying too aggressively on UPS devices, backup power. Uh, UPS devices uh, don't need to be pure sine wave for most of the gear you're ever going to plug into it. Right. Uh, having AVR, meaning it can adjust the voltage automatically. It's line responsive, mm -hmm. line interactive, mm -hmm. yeah. whether or not there's any battery life in the thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, and, and it's also got some level of surge and, and other EMI RFI protection. So it's an expensive way to, it's not overly expensive to get protection. The place most people forgot to put it is where the modem comes in the house. A lot of modems have their own batteries these days. Mm -hmm. yeah. if, you've, if you've got a notebook, it's got its own battery and you've got a lot less to worry about. It's not the day of the big system units sitting next to your desk. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so don't overbuy these things. And uh, if you want to investigate a backup generator, if you're in a place with a lot of problems, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to want to contact them soon to get booked anytime before summer. Yes, it's strange how winter does that to people. Oh, it's not winter. It's supply chain. Oh, it, oh is it really? Up. Oh, I, I, I figured winter time, just like, you, you know, you, the last time you, you don't want to call the AC guy when it's 100 <laughs> degrees out. <laughs> We're in the middle of a heat wave. It's going to be 100 degrees every day for the next week. Uh, yeah. Now, look, we're, we're going to come back next month and, and treat some of this stuff in a little more depth. And I've got more stuff coming in, as always. But yeah. for right now, the one thing I want everybody to have a look at is this. Happy holidays. <laughs> Very good. This is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, January the 5th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is WPCUG. Org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, January the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn, Phone number is 347-278-7320. New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, January the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, January the 26th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is bcug.com. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter cold. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Season's greeting and happy holidays from the Personal Computer Show staff. Stay safe and healthy 
Until we meet again, same time, same station next week. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And you won't just be gone And so this is So happy Christmas.